Okay, can, you, can everybody hear me? Yes. Is that all right? Yes. I trust that if you can't hear me at some point, you'll either enjoy the rest, <laughs> close your eyes, settle down, you know, make up for the lost hour, <laughs> or if, if you feel moved that you want to hear, then let me know. You know, I don't mind either way, really. I'm quite, as long as you don't mind me going to sleep as well, I'm quite happy for you to do so. Well, I think, um, first of all, I want to extend the, um, the good wishes of the church where Caroline and I meet in Aylesbury and the Lord's blessing to you from them. I know they would want me to do that, and indeed I will presume to take your good wishes back to them as well. It is so important in these days that we learn to encourage one another, even when we haven't met each other. You know, these are difficult times and we need the encouragement of the body of Christ in order to stand through what are really very difficult days, particularly at the present moment and all the difficulties in the country with Brexit and so on. We need the support of each other, really, to come through this and not to lose sight of the Lord in it. Um, well, I hadn't realized it was John and Helena's wedding anniversary, so I'm going to be very presumptuous and just pray for the two of you. Well, Father, we want to thank you for John and Helena. Lord, we want to thank you for bringing them together. Father, we want to thank you for their ministry together. And Lord, we would ask you for them, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them rest in the labor that you've given them. Lord, we'd ask you particularly for them for that rest in their labor lord we'd ask that you would do the work and that you would greatly increase their fruitfulness together in ministry amen, amen. well um now let's turn to the word shall we so i'll just ask the lord to open the word to us well father we do want to ask that you would Show us something of our own hearts through your word. Lord, we'd ask you that you would reveal to us uh, where we need to respond to you, what you have to say to us. So, Lord, open our ears and really um, so break your word to us that we're able to see ourselves anew and you anew. Amen. Well, I was very struck by that verse in Philippians that John was sharing with us as we broke bread together, um, that the Lord Jesus made himself of no reputation. And in many ways, I suppose, if you wanted to, um, in a sense, encapsulate what I'm going to be talking to you about uh, this morning, it is about the lives of various people who did not make themselves of no reputation. In other words, these are lives of people who were big in their own eyes and the problems which resulted from it. So these are people who would have done well to take that verse to heart, really. Well, what I'm going to look at then is one of David's wives. And this is a wife of David who you perhaps won't have thought about very much because her life is spread out over a number of chapters of scripture. So we read about her in little bits over a whole sequence of the word of God. So you don't read about her life in one sort of bundle. 
So in, in many ways, her life passes unnoticed as you read the word through. And this is Michal, Saul's daughter, David's first wife, I believe. Um, she appears to be his first wife. She was the daughter of Saul. Her name is Michal, and you'll find her life recorded in 1 Samuel 18, 19, 25, and 2 Samuel 6. And what I'm going to do, basically, is to tell you her life story. So we're going to look at what happened to her through her life and her marriage to David. The background to all of this is that these events begin when Saul is still king, but he's been a disobedient to the Lord, and the Lord has said that he will remove the kingdom from Saul and give it to somebody else. That's in 1 Samuel 15. And indeed, in 1 Samuel 16, we read how David is anointed as king, but it's done in secret in Bethlehem. Nobody knows about it, but Samuel anoints David as king. So David is the anointed king, but Saul is still actually physically king in the land. And we're going through this difficult period of transition from one to the other. Very testing time for everybody involved, really. Extremely difficult time. Particularly for Saul, because in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord sends an evil spirit to terrorize Saul. And the implications become steadily worse and worse for Saul as time goes on. David has begun... Um, he's an accomplished musician, and he's begun life as a musician in Saul's court. He is still traveling to and from Saul's court, back, back and fro from his family in Bethlehem to Saul. He's still moving to and fro through this period at the beginning of this story, and he's gradually becoming a more and more accomplished warrior. So he's growing in his military prowess. And I want to really pick up events uh, in 1 Samuel 18 because this is a very significant event. And in fact, when I was here six months ago, we were looking at these events in a slightly different context. So if you're thinking, I've heard all this before, you're right. You did. You heard it from me six months ago, but the context was different. And we focused on something different six months ago. This time round, we're going to focus on David's marriage. So 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. This gives us an indication of David's growing military prowess. It says this, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming... When David returned from killing the Philistines, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with their tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David tens of thousands, but to me 
They've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day onwards. This is the very beginning of Saul beginning to feel that David is becoming more prominent than him, that Saul is suddenly in David's shadow and he doesn't like it at all. This is why I was saying to you, here is a man who was not willing to be of no reputation. And the consequences for Saul are desperate, really. Actually, the song itself, I said this to you six months ago, and you might remember this even if you don't remember anything else. The song is ridiculous. I mean, why did they need to sing that at all? I mean, it's not helpful, and it's the beginning of a major problem. And occasionally that will happen. You know, sometimes people will be flattering about you. It might even be true. It's not always helpful. In fact, it's very rarely helpful to anybody um, to big them up because, you know, most of us have a problem with that, don't we? Well, the result of all of that is that later on in 1 Samuel 18, uh, Saul begins to attempt to kill David and he attempts to kill him twice with a spear uh, and fails, obviously, on both occasions. And so he looks for another strategy to kill David. And the strategy he adopts is to use his daughters as bait to kill David. You can begin to see that Saul is becoming a little unbalanced about this, isn't it? You know, I mean, here he is with his daughters, whom he should be caring for, and they have become the means of trapping his enemy. Dreadful, really. So 1 Samuel 18, verse 17 says, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merab. I will give you to her as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought... My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Actually, um, that might remind you of David himself. Actually, David himself does the same thing with Uriah the Hittite. Do you remember that? David uses warfare to actually murder his friend. You know, and we can do that. We can be those whose heart is so set against somebody that we put them in a situation where they fall. That's part of the human heart. And a lot of this story is really about exposing the human heart. It shows us what the human heart is actually like. And here is David's safeguard, really. The safeguard for David in all of this is he doesn't think much of himself. The safeguard for David is he's small in his own sight. That is why he survives, really. So we go on and read in verse 18. It says, David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? You see, David doesn't think that he is worthy of a place in the royal family. Isn't that amazing? Really, you'd think anyone else would have jumped at the chance to marry the king's daughter... I mean, you become a member of the royal family. And therefore, in a sense, you begin to have a right of succession, don't you? You begin to enter that 
royal family and you begin to get that right of succession yourself, perhaps. Uh, and David doesn't want anything to do with it. He says, actually, this is, this is not my place. I am not worthy of this. And there's a safety in it for him. So it came about at the time when Merab Saul's daughter should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Mehethothite, or something, for a wife. So that was the first daughter married off. We now come to the second daughter. So this is Saul's younger daughter. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And I want you to remember that. This girl loves David. It's a love story. We're embarking on a love story. And the girl loves the boy. And what a tender relationship that is. And, uh, and when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Actually, her name means a little stream of water. Her name means a brook, tiny stream of water. And you can imagine that her life and her love was really a refreshment to David through these difficult times. It's as if David is going to go through the most difficult period and so God gives him a wife who loves him. And she is that refreshment to him through these difficult days. Very tender relationship well how does Saul react well Saul thought I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him I mean it is dreadful the father is is really using the daughter in order that the daughter's husband should die in battle, inflicting utter misery on his daughter. Why? Because he's a proud man. His self-righteous pride has got to the stage where he is even willing to see his own daughter suffer. Dreadful. Well, let's read on. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servant, saying, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. Actually, what Saul is expecting is that self-interest will motivate David. If you're the sort of person who is motivated by self-interest, you expect everyone else to be as well. So here is Saul, who is motivated by self-interest himself, so he expects David's to be. Well, what happens? So if we read on, verse 23, So Saul's servant spoke these words to David. But David said, is it a trivial thing in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed? You see, he just simply won't fall into this trap because self-interest is not something which motivates him. And the servants reported to Saul all these words which David had spoken. 
And Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemy. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. That's twice the number required. Um, Then David brought their foreskins and gave the full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michelle, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michelle's Saul's daughter loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. So we've seen how David has acquired this loving wife. And what a good start to a marriage, really. I mean, he's got a bit of a problem with his father-in-law, but many of us understand something about that. You know, in-laws are difficult, aren't they? Always difficult. New relationships with in-laws, that's going to be a problem. But he's got a loving wife to see him through. Well, actually, what does the marriage look like? Well, if you turn on to 1 Samuel 19, you get a picture of the marriage. So now we, we begin to see this marriage growing. And uh, 1 Samuel 19, verse 8 Then there was war again, and David went out and fought the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, so they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, because this is, I think, the third attempt to kill him with the spear. And he slipped out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. You see, things actually have moved on. Saul's hatred has grown. And now David really can't remain in the presence of Saul any longer. Things have reached the point where there needs to be a separation. And that was what I spoke about last time I was here, was this matter of knowing when things have reached that point. Um, But today we're going to focus on the wife, Michelle. So David has run away. And Saul sent messengers, in verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. Here's a good wife. She cares for her husband. She understands the situation. She knows what is going on. She understands her father. And she says to her husband, this is what you need to do. It's a good wife. Good relationship. So Michal let David down through a window. And he went out and fled and escaped. I mean, in my mind, this is a bathroom window. And he climbs out down a drain pipe and runs off. His wife waving, bye, dove, you know, 
as he goes. Well, so you can see this is a good, good marriage. She's protecting him. Furthermore, in verse 13, she takes the household idol, lays it on the bed, puts a quilt of goat's hair on its head, and covers it with clothes. So now she's buying him time. She's letting him get away. So there in verse 14, it says, Saul sent messengers to take David, and she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messages to see David, saying, Bring him to me on his bed that I may put him to death. You can tell that this isn't Britain. You know. <laughs> In Britain, of course, we would let him get well before we executed him. But this isn't Britain. We're going to put him to death, even though he's ill. Verse 16. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed and the quilt of goat's hair on its head. So Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and let me go so that he has escaped? Now, this, I think, is a critical point in the story. You see, Michal has been helpful to David. She's let him get away. She's loved him. And she's faced down Saul's messengers. But now she must face her father face to face when her husband isn't there. This is a whole different matter. You know, we can be so strong when our wife is alongside us or when our husband is alongside us and that support can give us enormous strength. Or it might be if you're not married, your friend, you know, your best friend is alongside you. Perhaps your pastor is alongside you and you've got strength. What do you like when you're on your own? Because this is the situation. She's now on her own. Her husband has gone and she has to answer her father for herself. Isolated. I have to say, when I think about that, I, I quake. Really? I find the support of others tremendously encouraging to me. When I'm on my own... My heart sinks into my boots quite often and I feel so exposed and that's the situation this girl is now in. Michelle is now in. She's got to face her father and her husband isn't there. Her best friend isn't there. He's gone. So she must give an answer and this is the answer she gives. There in the second half of verse 17, Michelle said to Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I put you to death? That, of course, is not what happened. That is a lie. And the problem with this particular lie is that she's painting her husband in a bad light. What she's saying is, my husband wanted to murder me. How can she ever answer her father again? What she's done in that simple answer is lose any ability to stand before her father and defend her husband. She's lost, if I can put it like this, her cutting edge. Her cutting edge has gone, just like that. And it didn't have to be like that. You see, if you compare her answer 
with her brother's answer to a very similar question, uh, his answer is completely different. Of course, her brother was Jonathan. Jonathan was the brother, and in 1 Samuel 19, verse 1, Jonathan has to answer to his father as well. So it's interesting to see how Jonathan answers. So 1 Samuel 19, verse 1, Saul told Jonathan his son and his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Well, so did Michelle. They both loved him. Then in verse 4 it says, Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Do not let the king sin against the servant David, since he's not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then do you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without cause? Saul listened to Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. What a contrast. You see, Jonathan speaks on David's behalf, and well and behold, Saul listens to him. Amazing. When Michal speaks, she just brings her own defense, really, and puts her husband in a bad light. Tremendous contrast. And really, Michal's life, in many ways, changes at that point. And we don't read very much until later on of the change which has occurred. But it's, this is the point at which the marriage changes quite significantly at this particular point. Well, of course, Samuel, in telling us the events, is going to focus on David and Saul and so on. And so Michal slips a little bit into the background uh, for the next few chapters. We read a little bit about her in 1 Samuel 25, verse 44. And this is where the story really turns into a tragedy. So what has started as a wonderful marriage is now becoming a tragedy. 1 Samuel 25, verse 44. Now Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, and he, he has two names. He's either called Palti or Paltiel. He's a bit like me. I'm either David or Dave. The son of Laish, who is from Galim. Do you see what has happened? Saul has given Michal to another man to marry. This other marriage is bigamous. Michal hasn't got a divorce. They're not divorced. This is not... I need to make this clear, really. This is not divorce and remarriage. This is a woman who is already married, who has not been divorced, who is put into a second marriage. This is a bigamous, illegal marriage with this man. Very different from divorce and remarriage. Totally different. This is a bigamous, illegal second marriage. It's a forced marriage. She's been forced into it. Remember, she loves David. Why did Paltiel marry her? You know, I mean, he knew full well the situation. This is the king's daughter, married, and yet he marries her. Why would he do that? Why does Paltiel go ahead and marry her? Well, one can only assume 
that Paltiel does not believe there will be a day of judgment. Paltiel proceeds on the basis that this will never be called into account. Why would there never be a day of judgment? Well, perhaps he doesn't think David will ever become king, or perhaps he thinks that when David becomes king it won't really matter. But actually life isn't like that. What we do has consequences and they are called to account. I mean, in Luke chapter 12, it says this, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. There is nothing hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you say in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. This isn't just going to work. This is going to be disaster. And yet he goes ahead and does it. He's a very foolish man. And the consequences are going to be dire for him. Well, we find the consequences in 2 Samuel chapter 3. So this now, the story now reappears, it resurfaces, the story of this marriage, resurfaces in 2 Samuel chapter 3. So we've got Michal, who's David's wife, who Saul has put into a forced marriage with another man, Paltiel. But now, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 3, David has become king. So Saul has died, David is now king, and now matters will be brought to account. When David comes to the throne, matters are going to have to be put right. So 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 12. Abner sent messages to David in his place saying, Whose is the land? Make a covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And he, that's David, said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing, namely, you shall not see my face unless first you bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. Remember, Michal is still David's wife. This is not divorce and remarriage. He's married to her. This is an illegal, bigamous marriage. So David sent messages to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me Michal, my wife, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But the husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go, return. So he returned. I wonder if you can see the scene. I mean, to me, this scene, it, every time I read it, it brings tears to my eyes. Because you see this man who has been so foolish as to marry a woman who was already married, and he's, he's fallen in love with her, and he can't let her go because he hasn't repented of the fact that he married her when, he, when she was already married, this bigamous marriage, and so he can't bring himself to let her go, so he follows behind weeping, and my heart goes out to him. I have to say, I weep with him. But what a foolish man. 
really, if only we could see the end of our foolishness. He would never have embarked on this if he'd realised the broken heart that was to result. It's a real lesson to us not to get into this. Um, It says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Don't let your heart go somewhere that it should not go, because the outcome is death. And that's what's happened. He's allowed his heart to be drawn somewhere that it should never have gone, and the outcome is death. Well, so David now has his wife back. The marriage is restored, but after considerable trauma. Really, what a traumatic thing, really, this marriage has been through. And marriages do, at times, go through real trauma and real difficulty. I mean, there's been a time of separation, there's been a time of of this illegal marriage that should never have happened, that, um, that was bigamous and so on, and all of that. And now the two are back together. And sadly, the marriage is not the same as it was. When we look at this final picture of this marriage, it is one which is not the glorious marriage that started. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel 6. And this is a great day for David. The day we're reading of here is one of the high spots in David's life. I'm sure if you had David and you said to him, tell me about the highlights of your life, this would be one of the things he would tell about. Actually, I was with a man two days ago. We were planning his funeral That's an interesting thing to do, to plan a funeral with somebody who hasn't died yet. Uh, But he wanted to do that, and he he was asking me to take his funeral when he died. He's actually, he's fit and healthy, alive and so on. And he was telling me about the day that, um, well, I'll tell you the story because it's so encouraging. He, He was with the Gideons in Peru. This is nothing to do with this story here, by the way. This is a complete red herring. He was with the Gideons distributing Bibles in Peru and um, they distributed Bibles in a hotel and the whole party of Gideons had got on a coach to go back and, um, and he just said, well, the way he put it to me was he said, I couldn't get on the coach, David. He, there was just something that said to me, don't get on the coach, don't go with them. So the coach drove off and he was left outside the hotel where they distributed the Bibles. He said, so I walked back into the hotel and there were the four musicians who'd been playing music in the hotel lobby. And we'd given them Bibles earlier and they only spoke Spanish and my friend only spoke English. He said, but they signalled to come over, for me to come over. He said, so I went over to them and they made it known to me that they wanted to give their lives to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? And that was one of the things that he once remembered at his funeral. I'm not surprised. What a high spot in a man's life, really. Well, same thing for David, really. This is just like that. This is a day which David will remember. 
Why will David remember it? Well, because David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. This is the time when David is actually going to bring the ark into Jerusalem so that David can have the presence of God with him in Jerusalem. Tremendous day for David. And it's been a, a day that's been very difficult to get to. He's struggled to get to this point. But now he has the ark coming, so he's thrilled. So let's read about it in verse 12. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. It says, Now the Lord told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. That was where the ark had been. And David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. I mean, this must have been incredibly slow progress. Every six paces, you've got to sacrifice. And David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, and David was wearing a linen ephod. I don't know how you feel about dancing in worship. I mean, you probably look at me and think, yeah, you probably don't. <laughs> I mean, you're quite right. I mean, I, I, I don't do dancing, you know. I mean, I'm sort of a bit wooden. The church where Caroline and I worship, we've got a large multicultural church and a lot, of the, a lot of the African and West Indian ladies, they're dancing away in the pews and I know if we took the chairs out, they'd be dancing and so on. Just like David here and I'd be sort of standing there going like this. You know, trying not to move at all, if at all possible, because I'm very British. Well, they're not British. Their culture is different. This is a cultural matter, you know. Actually, David dancing, worshipping the Lord, is not worshipping the Lord in a greater way than someone who's standing still worshipping the Lord. It's the heart which matters, not the feet. If only we could get a grasp of that. It's not how high you dance or how much you wave your arms. It's what your heart is like that matters. But here is David dancing away. And the significant thing is what he's wearing. He's wearing a linen ephod. Now this means that's what the priests wore. So David actually is looking exactly the same as the priests. There's no difference. And um, it reminded me of a, many years ago when I, my brother-in-law was a senior police officer and he was in charge of policing the test match between England and Australia in Edgbaston in Birmingham. And I got invited to the police box. And we were sitting in the box with all the policemen watching the match. And the match was boring, uh, like most cricket matches are. And so we were watching the members stand opposite. So right across there was the members stand. And on the police radio, there came a message. John Major has just entered the members stand. And so we got all the glasses and we were going along looking for John Major, Prime Minister of the day. And he was in a grey suit alongside all the other members who were all in grey suits. And we stood there for about half an hour, me and the entire Birmingham police force, trying to identify the British Prime Minister in the cricket ground. We couldn't do it. You could not see him. That's what's happening with David. David looks identical 
to all the priests. If you'd stood on the balcony watching, you'd have watched, which one is David? The one who's jumping around, yeah, but he looks identical. No difference at all. This is what the king of Israel has done, is take off all his royal robes to appear exactly the same as everybody else. There's no kingship in David at all. This is the different heart. This is the heart of the man that the Lord chose, who made himself of no reputation. Now look at what happens. So David is dancing. He's just wearing this linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I mean, your worship here is quite noisy. I wonder how you'd feel if we got a trumpet in and we said we're not going to sing we're going to shout and have the sound would you now begin to feel a bit uncomfortable maybe you think well it's a bit over the top John don't think we should be doing you know it's a bit too much well let's read on then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Mishal the daughter of Saul. Do you see there's a change in the way she is spoken of? She's now Michal, the daughter of Saul. And this is the tragedy. Michal has gone back to being the daughter of Saul, who was big in his own eyes, whose reputation was everything. And she's his daughter. Looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. You see, what she's saying is, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be standing there as king. Somebody important. My husband. And in verse 20 it says, But when David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How has the king of Israel distinguished himself today? He uncovered himself in the eyes of his servant's maid as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, she doesn't mean he's naked. She simply means he has not got on any of his royal robes. That's what it means. It means you've divested yourself of all of your royal robes and you appear just in that linen ephod like any one of those priests. So David says to Michal, it was before the Lord. You know, when we worship we worship before the Lord. Worshipping God is not a spectator sport. You know, it is not for our entertainment. And then David says, you chose me above, 
It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Can you just tell something of the way they are talking to one another? You know, there, there is no tenderness in this conversation. There is no tenderness in this marriage. The marriage has lost its first love. The way David speaks to Michal and the way Michal speaks to David, the marriage has lost something. And it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. And you want to get the two of them, at least I want to get the two of them, to sit down and say, now, talk to one another. Remember how you loved each other. Remember those days before Paltiel. And get yourselves back there to love one another as you did at first. Because both of them, the way they're talking, it's, it's reached a low point. <coughs> and then David goes on and says, I will be more lightly esteemed than this and I'll be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids whom you've spoken of, by them I shall be distinguished. And then this is the crunch, this is the point really of today. The reason I'm bringing you this message today is this last verse. Mishal, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. <coughs> Despising the worship of others brings unfruitfulness. Guard your hearts from self-righteousness. Once self-righteousness comes into the life, fruitfulness goes. And that's the lesson of Michal, really. Leaving aside all the relationship issues, the most important thing here is not to despise the worship of others. Shall we pray? Well, Father, we do want to come before you. And Lord, you know, each one of us in different ways wants to be big. Lord, we don't find it easy to make ourselves of no reputation and to empty ourselves. And yet that is indeed exactly what your son did. And Lord, we want to ask you to take us from where we are and to enable us to empty ourselves and make ourselves of no reputation. And Father, where we, perhaps we have despised the worship of others because it's not the way we like it, Lord, we'd ask for your forgiveness and a real change of heart. Father, grant us a new start. And Lord, you know those of us who've been through difficult circumstances, Perhaps where we've been ill-treated, maybe by parents, like Michel. Father, we'd ask you for that ability to forgive and to continue to love. Amen.